Dear congregation, last week uh, we considered Abraham and Advent. And we uh, learned from the scriptures that Jesus Christ coming in the flesh on Christmas Day is a fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. That Abraham would have land, seed, and blessing. Let's try to fix those things in our memories. Land, seed, and blessing. God promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan. We saw that promise repeated to Jacob uh, this morning. And God promised to give Abraham a seed, a numerous seed, as the stars in the sky for multitude and the sand on the seashore. And God promised Abraham that in you, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we saw last week that in a special way, the Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to Abraham because Jesus Christ was the seed, the seed of Abraham. And Jesus Christ was that blessing. The blessing of justification by faith in Christ was that blessing that came to Jew and Gentile and so was the fulfillment of the blessing promised to Abraham. But I hope that you also remember that we noted that this, these promises of land, seed, and blessing that God made to Abraham also had a physical, literal fulfillment. And that's what we hope to address also this evening. Because the literal and physical fulfillment of those promises, maybe I shouldn't use the word literal because literally they were also spiritually fulfilled, but by that I mean an actual land, dirt, soil, and numerous children. And that, that uh, uh, Israel would be a channel or a source of blessing to the nations around it. Because the promises that God made to Abraham had a double fulfillment. There was a spiritual fulfillment of those promises. And that's, of course, what the whole New Testament is taken up with. The New Testament has nothing to say about the physical fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. The New Testament is always focused on the spiritual seed of Abraham, right? The Lord Jesus Christ and all those who are in Christ. The, the, the justification by faith, the blessing to Jew and Gentile alike. Those spiritual fulfillments of God's promises to Abraham. But tonight, when we consider Moses and Advent, we are going to now see that God fulfilled the promises that he made to Abraham also in a physical and literal way. So let's begin then with the seed promise. Seed promise. Now, if you'd take your Bible, and if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, we know that God made the promise to Abraham that God would give him numerous children. I will make a great nation out of you, says God to Abraham. Now, we know that in the New Testament, that was fulfilled spiritually. and We talked about that last week. But now turn with me to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1. Exodus 1 and verse 1. And already, right there at the very beginning of Exodus, we see God keeping his promise to Abraham. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, or each with his family. And then verse 2, 3, 
four, five, six, right? Are you still with me? Verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. Now, my, now my friends, I, I really hope that as you're, as you're reading this, you're thinking about what God said to Abraham, right? I will multiply your seed like the stars of heaven for multitude. And now the book of Exodus is just a record of God fulfilling that promise to Abraham. And it continues, right? And then uh, so many, the children of Israel were so many that the king of Egypt begins to say, this is a problem. We cannot have this many Israelites living in our land. That's a threat to our national security. And he takes appropriate measures, at least appropriate to his own way of thinking, to deal with this threat. But we, as Christians, reading this chapter, and again, I, I hope that's, that's the case, think immediately of what God said to Abraham. I will greatly multiply your seed. And now we read it. Here it's happening, directly in front of us. And I, again, this is not now talking about a spiritual thing, right? God giving Abraham, uh, like what Paul was talking about in Galatians last week, right? That when you have the faith of Abraham, you are a son of Abraham. No, now he's talking about literal ethnic children. And now that's happening. That's the seed promise. Now, if you continue with me in the book of Exodus and you turn to chapter 2, so Exodus 2 and verse 24. And by now you can, well, I don't know if you have it in your pew Bible there, but if you see the kind of the subheadings here of what's happening, right? The children of Israel are now, they've been uh, uh, taken by the Egyptians and they've been uh, enslaved and made to serve the Egyptians. But in Exodus 2 and verse 24, what do we read there? So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Now again, here's God, and again, God doesn't think like we do, but God is represented here to us in human terms. God remembers. He remembers what he promised to Abraham. And he sees his children groaning under the burden of the Egyptians, groaning under their taskmasters. And now God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, the covenant he repeated to Isaac, and the covenant he repeated to Jacob, and he's going to act on that. But for our purposes tonight, we see that what's happening here in Exodus is simply God carrying on the promises that he made to Abraham. And in fact, up until this point, we've had no new covenant. This is just God keeping his promise to Abraham. No new covenant yet. Let's move on to the land promise. And again, stay in the book of Exodus. And again, I, I, I repeat, my friends, that's how you should think about the book of Exodus. Exodus is just God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. Now when we go to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And this is now when Moses has his first encounter with Pharaoh. Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And of course, Pharaoh rejects that. And, uh, and now God speaks to Moses and Aaron. So Exodus chapter 6 and verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Carefully listen. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. 
But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. So that's why we're on to point number two now, the land promise. I'm going to continue in Exodus 6 and verse 5. And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. That is my covenant that I made with Abraham. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So there we have, my friends, God fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham to give him the land. And how does God do that? He did it by making life so irksome and so miserable in Egypt that even though Egypt was one of the wealthiest of lands in those days, Israel couldn't stand living there any longer. They had to get out. It was so miserable to them. And so even though the Egyptians tried to keep them there, God orchestrated things in his own divine providence such that finally the, the, the Egyptians threw them out and would not have them be in their land any longer. And then that's the whole history of the ten plagues. And the ten plagues is God versus Egypt, God versus Pharaoh. And finally, Israel is driven out of the land of Egypt and God brings them to the promised land. So that's God fulfilling to them the promised land. Again, I emphasize that here now we're talking about literal dirt, trees, and rocks, right? We're talking about actual property, real real estate. I come now to the blessing promise, the third promise that God, again, we're going to stay in the book of Exodus, and we're going to turn to chapter 19, the text that we read to you at the beginning of this service. And now, my friends, we come to Exodus 19 and verse 5. Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now notice here, verse 6 especially, that God says to the Israelites, that they will be a holy nation, a nation set apart for God's specific use. In other words, God has a calling on them. He has a use. He wants the, a use for Israel. He wants them to do something. He's going to send them on a mission. And it's going to be a mission of blessing to the nations around them. And what is that mission? A kingdom of priests. In other words, every Israelite is going to be a priest for me. That means between the nations of the world, Israel is going to be a priest. And what does a priest do? Right? A priest stands as an intermediary between people and God. A priest takes the things of people, takes their sacrifices, takes their offerings, and offers them up to God. And now God says to Moses, this is what you're to tell the Israelites, that I have a mandate for them. They are to be a source of blessing to all the nations and to all the peoples of the world. And how will they do that? By taking my things, taking the things of me, and bringing them 
to the people. Being a priest, standing between God and me. In other words, you as a nation are going to represent me to the peoples of this world. You're going to be a holy nation. And in fact, if I would say that the holy nation is the cause. The kingdom of priests is the effect. If I can put it that way, the holy nation is the cause. When they were a holy nation, if they were a holy nation, then they would be a kingdom of priests and they would represent, they would be a channel of blessing to the nations by bringing the knowledge of God to all the nations of the world. So land, seed, and blessing. But now I come to my fourth point, and this is a critical point, dear friends, and that is that these promises are conditional. Conditional. By that, I mean that the condition for the realization of these promises rests on the obedience of the Israelites themselves. Now hear me carefully. Hear me carefully. Remember that salvation for the Israelites is not by their obedience. That is still covered under the strictures of the Abraham covenant. How do you get right with God? How are you justified before God? That is by faith in the God who promised Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. But now these temporal blessings of life in the land of Israel, having many seed, children, prospering, and being a source for blessing to the nations, that depends on Israel's obedience. And now we have a new covenant, don't we? Because, my friends, the Abraham, the, God, the covenant God made with Abraham was not conditional on Abraham's obedience. Abraham believed God, right? He trusted in God, and he received the promised blessings. But now notice that the promised blessings are conditioned on Israel's obedience. Again, if you look at Exodus 19 and verse 5, listen to the different sound of this language. Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. My friends, do you remember from last week when we talked about God's covenant with Abraham, who was responsible for keeping the covenant? And how do we know? Again, I, re- I bring to your mind uh, what happened in Genesis 15. Remember the severed animals and the blazing torch that passed between those animals, which was God saying, I will keep the covenant. The covenant God made with Abraham, the responsibility for keeping it rested on God. Now, did Abraham have to trust? Yes, he had to put his trust in God. He had to follow God. He had to leave the country that he was living in. But still, the responsibility for keeping that covenant was on God. God made the promises. And God was going to keep them. But now we see something different in this next covenant that we're going to talk about. By the way, Exodus 19, flip the page. What do we have? Exodus 20. What's in Exodus 20? This is the Ten Commandments that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And now we have a new covenant, don't we? I should say a different covenant. This is what I'm going to call the Sinai Covenant. I think that's a good name for it. Sometimes it's called the Mosaic Covenant. But it wasn't really made so much with Moses, right? It was made with the children of Israel, right? You are going to be a holy nation. And if you will be a holy nation, then you'll be a kingdom of priests to me, to all the world. But now the responsibility 
for obedience to that covenant rests on Israel. Now, just as we turn to Exodus to see the fulfillment of these promises, to see this, this kind of uh, all the weight that God was putting on his people Israel here in the keeping of this covenant, because now Israel has to keep the covenant, is in Deuteronomy chapter 4. The book of Deuteronomy is filled. In fact, I, I just picked out some, some places in the book of Deuteronomy. Basically, the whole book of Deuteronomy is the terms of the covenant that God places on Israel. Do you want to keep the covenant, Israel? Then you need to read the book of Deuteronomy. Those are the terms of the covenant that if you want to live in this land, if you want to have numerous children, and if you want to be a source of blessing to all the nations, these are the terms. This is what you have to do, Israel. Now, please remember, I'm not saying, now, Israel, this is what you have to do to have your sins forgiven and to be in fellowship with me. That's something different. But these temporal, physical promises are conditioned on Israel's obedience. Now, when we turn to Deuteronomy 4, verse 25, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 25, read with me here. It says, When you become the father of children, and children's children, and have remained long in the land, and act corruptly, and make an idol in the form of anything, and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you shall surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but shall be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you shall be left few in number among the nations where the Lord shall drive you. If you keep turning in Deuteronomy to chapter 6, Deuteronomy 6, in Deuteronomy 4, God promises them that if you disobey my covenant, if you don't keep the strictures, the terms of what I'm laying upon you, that I'm going to throw you out of the land. Deuteronomy 6, and verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that your son so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. Again, think of that seed promise. That you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice that God is saying to his children, that if you disobey me, I will throw you out of the land. If you disobey me, you will not multiply. Your seed will not grow numerous. You will not multiply greatly. And if you do listen, and if you are careful to do his commands, verse 3, you shall multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And you will do it in a land. In other words, in this promised land, flowing with milk and with honey. Now, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 27, now here I don't have the time to read all this, but I think these chapters are probably familiar to you. These are those chapters at the end of Deuteronomy where there are the curses and the blessings. Chapter 27 is the curses. Again, if you look at verse 15, Deuteronomy 27 and verse 15, cursed is the man. Right? Verse 16, cursed is he. 17, cursed is he. 18, cursed, cursed, cursed. And it keeps going. And then in chapter 28, you have the blessings. Now all these blessings shall come upon you, 
If you will obey the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. And it goes on, verse 6, 7, 8, and continues. Blessing, blessing, blessing. The blessings and the curses in the land. And that's all conditioned upon Israel obeying God's commandments. Well, my friends, how did that work out in the nation of Israel? How did that go? Was Israel a source of blessing to all the nations of the world? Quite the contrary, wasn't it? In fact, just think about the books of the Bible. And again, just, just think in your own mind. When you get to the book of Judges, does that sound like Israel being a source of blessing to the nations? I mean, Judges is a, is a book you can hardly read with your children. Some of the stories in there, right? It's just gruesome. It's horrible. Well, let's push on. How about 1st, 2nd Samuel? David, the man after God's own heart. But even David failed, didn't he? Failed terribly. How about Solomon? How about the kings after that? Let's move on to 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. What's the story, my friends? What could you write over every Old Testament chapter? Failure. Yes, there are the occasional kings who, who serve God and who repent, but it's always a descent again into failure and failure. Israel was a failed nation. God gave them this mission, and they, they couldn't keep the commandments that God gave them to do. They failed constantly. The Old Testament is a history of failure until finally we get those dread words at the end of 2 Kings and at the end of 2 Chronicles that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, came and took the last two tribes off into exile. And Israel as a nation is no more. It's a sad history, isn't it? It's a history of constant, repeated failure. Now again, we're talking about those physical blessings, right? They failed to keep those physical blessings, life in the land and multiplying as seed. When we come in the New Testament, right, the New Testament authors teach us that that covenant had a specific purpose that God made with Israel and that it did not nullify the covenant God made with Abraham. We talked about that last week. So critical that you remember that, my friends. But this covenant that God made with Israel that they could stay in the land if they obeyed his commandments, had a specific purpose. And let's turn to that now. You all know where we're going to turn. <laughs> We've turned so many times to this chapter. Galatians 3. And you might have this chapter memorized by the time we finish these sermons. But Galatians 3 is so critical because this is where Paul teaches us how to understand these different covenants. I ask you to turn with me now uh, to Galatians 3 and verse 19. Galatians 3 and verse 19. Now hopefully you can remember something of what we talked about last time. Remember that God said that once a covenant is duly established, you can't add to it or take it away. So God added the, the covenant with Israel at Sinai. That's what we've just talked about. But now in verse 19, Paul asked the question that we're asking. Why did God do that? Why did God make that covenant at Mount Sinai with his people, which he knew they wouldn't be able to keep? And which gives us the sad, repeated story of failure upon failure upon failure in the Old Testament. 
Why the law then, says Paul, Galatians 3, 19. Why that Sinai covenant? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. You follow me now, congregation? That what the Apostle Paul is saying, that God put this Sinai covenant upon his people as a burden because of transgressions. What does that mean, because of transgressions? Why would God make a covenant with a people because of transgressions? Well, let's continue. Let's come down to verse 22. Galatians 3 now and verse 22. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And Again, this is something of what we addressed this morning in our assurance of pardon. But what did that law do, congregation? When God gave that law to his people, they learned a valuable lesson that when God makes a covenant with us and when that covenant depends upon my own obedience, when the keeping of that covenant is on me, the story will always be one of failure. And so Paul says, the scripture has shut up all men under sin. In other words, that Sinai covenant locked the people up in a prison where they came to such a place in their life when they realized that their own obedience and their own works and their own merits constantly failed. And that no matter how hard they tried, they could not work themselves up into God's favor. They could not measure up to God's standards. And that the keeping of the covenant, when it rested on them, was a failure. And that's why, my friends, Israel went off into exile. Because finally, God's patience came to an end. And he drove them out of the land that he had promised to give them. Now, in verse 22 of Galatians 3, but the scripture has shut up all men under sin. In other words, the scripture teaches us this, that this Sinai covenant, this law, has shut up all men under sin, that, in order that, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. My friends, now think of those people locked up in that prison with no possibility of escape. Their own merits have condemned them to hell forever. And they're locked up. And now Christ comes. My friends, do you hear it this evening? And he brings the gospel. And he says, listen, I'll make a promise to you. And the only thing to receive that promise is just faith. Just faith in Christ. Why, you don't need to keep every commandment. You don't need to earn my favor by, by the way you did when you, I, to stay in the land, you had to earn it. But no longer do you have to earn it. In fact, this is what the scripture teaches us, that that Sinai covenant locked people up in sin, convicted them of their sin, convicted of them of their inability to keep the law. Why? To bring them to a savior. To bring them, my friends, as we celebrate in this Advent season, to the cradle in Bethlehem to bring them to Calvary and with the bleeding king crucified there. And now, my friends, such a people are in such a position that they have nowhere else to turn. They are locked up in their sin. And the Sinai covenant has convicted them of it, that they have no way to turn, no possibility of salvation. 
And now God comes with the promise of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 23, Paul repeats the same idea. Galatians 3, verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Again, he's saying the same thing. Before, uh, before the Sinai covenant was lifted off us at the coming of Christ, when we lived under the, under the terms of that covenant, we were in prison. We couldn't move. Failure was written over everything that we did. And then the promised seed came. Christ came. And it came to a people who knew exactly what to do. You know, I could use an example like this, children. If, if somebody's drowning, right? They're drowning either in a pool or a lake or whatever they may be drowning, right? And I throw them a life ring, right? I throw them one of those foam life rings. Do I have to tell them what to do with it? Are you kidding? Their life depends upon it. They cling to it. They know they have no other possibility to be rescued except for that life ring. They cling to it. Their life depends upon it. But if I walked up to you right now and threw you a life ring, I mean, you'd look, you'd, what's this? What am I going to do with this? I don't need this, right? You'd, you'd throw it aside. You have no use for it. And now in the same way, my friends, when the promised seed came, it came to a people who were locked up in the prison of their own sin. And they knew what to do with Christ. They knew what to do with Christ. They'd been convicted of their sin. And so, so many of the Jewish people and the Gentile people as well who didn't have the experience of the Sinai Covenant. But the Jewish people knew what to do with Jesus. Come unto me, he said, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And they came. Many of them came and were saved. That's the purpose of this covenant. You know, I couldn't help but think of the rich young ruler because Christ really dealt with the rich young ruler in a very similar way, didn't he? Remember the rich young ruler came and he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the gospel, right? But Jesus didn't say that. He said, you know the commandments, keep the commandments and you will live. What did Jesus do? He didn't really mean to tell this man, right, that you can be saved by obeying all the commandments. Jesus did to the rich young ruler what God did to the nation of Israel with the Sinai covenant. He said, go keep the commandments. And what he did by that was he highlighted and exposed the man's sin, which was the love of his possessions. Again, Jesus gave him the law. Why? So that he would die under the law. And that he would see and feel and sense his need for a savior, his need for mercy. My friends, I come to our applications because my application, my friends, is, is very simple tonight. Children, on your notes, it says, question two and question three there, it says Israel was a blank and Jesus was a blank. I think you can fill in those, those terms now, can't you? Israel was a failure. Israel was a failure. Jesus, a success. You see, where Israel failed to keep all the commandments of God, the promised seed came, Jesus came, and he lived the perfect life. He lived the life that Israel should have lived and failed to do. When we read the Gospels, my friends, what do we read? We read the life of Christ. Now, we read about his death, too, and we love that. 
But we read so much about his life, do you ever understand why? So much of Christ's life is given us. Why? Christ succeeded where Israel failed. And that's the preaching of Advent to us this, 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 uh, this evening, my friends. That Israel failed in all the expectations that God placed upon them. And what took place in Israel's history must also take place in my history. You follow me this evening? That what God did to Israel by showing them their sin and their inability to keep his commandments, that must also become my experience by the power of the Spirit in my life. That God would show me that the, that the perfection of his law must be kept by me. God's law must be observed, and it must be observed perfectly. God cannot allow the least transgression to any of his commandments. And we need to stop here, my friends, and that's why the first point tonight is failure. Because I need to ask you, have you learned that lesson? You know, I don't know how this happens, but somehow the, the message this, the tonight is almost the same as the message this, this morning. Jacob had to have his hip dislocated so that finally he came to the place of helplessness. Israel needed to be brought to the same place. And God did it by giving them a covenant and making the, the keeping of that covenant depend on their obedience to his law. And he brought them to that place where they were locked up under sin and had nowhere else to turn but to cry out for mercy. My friends, it's a point of self-examination for you tonight. We don't like to think of ourselves as a failure. But that's really what I'm asking tonight. That's really what the scripture is saying to you. Do you see yourself tonight as a failure? That all the expectations, the, all the commandments that we read in Scripture, that we've failed every one of them. That's why I read Psalm 119. Because we hear David talking about, I will heap your commandments continually, forever and ever. He delights in the law of God. And my friends, isn't it the case that when we read that, we, we feel condemned ourselves? Because we don't have that kind of delight in God's law. All true religion begins here, my dear friends. In this place of conviction. This place of taking our place before God as guilty. The, the great theologian J. Gresham Machen said that the great pain reliever that people take in situations like this is to compare themselves to others. And you say, well, you know, I, I'm not perfect, but I, I'm certainly not as bad as such and such a person or these people over here, you know. And by doing that, my friends, we, we try to relieve the conviction of this guilt that comes upon us. But you see, my friends, any step, or any, anything that we do to sidestep looking this guilt in the face means I can't ever get to point two in my sermon tonight. We have to come to this place where we acknowledge ourselves to be failures, to be guilty. We cannot keep the commandments that God expects us to keep. But thank God, my friends, I can come to point two tonight. And I pray that by the Spirit, 
that when we acknowledge ourselves to be failures, that we can now turn to the promised seed. And we can now turn, my friends, to the one who in the face of Israel's failure succeeded in every respect. Do you remember what God the Father said about Jesus? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But my friends, Israel was God's Son too. He says it many times in the prophets. Israel is my Son. But what a rebellious, foolish Son Israel was. But God says of His Son Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the new Israel. And my friends, the only way that we can find success in keeping God's law is to get into Christ. We have to get out from under the law, or to use the terms that our Sunday school children are familiar with, we have to get out from under that covenant of works. You remember that expression, children, the covenant of works. You have to get out from that covenant because you'll die under that covenant. And you have to get in to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the covenant of grace. And you see, my friends, when we are in Christ, then we partake of his success. Isn't that a wonder? That's the glory of the gospel, my friends. I said it already that God expects you to keep every one of his commandments. And when I stand here before you today, I know I'm a failure. But I can say to you, my friends, in another sense, I have kept that me, the worst sinner that ever put two feet on the ground, I have kept every single one of God's commandments. How? Because I stand under another covenant. I stand in the person of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you stand there with me tonight? When you stand in the person of Christ, then you participate in his success. And you can say honestly and truthfully before God, whose all-seeing eye sees your wicked heart, and you can say, Lord, I've kept every one of your commandments perfectly. Not in myself personally, but in my covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, that's the gospel. And that's in my third application, why we come to the manger in the Advent season and we can stop and we can bow down there and we can take hold of Jesus Christ, that king, that child born in Bethlehem as our only hope of salvation. What a precious, precious thing, my friends. What a way to celebrate Christmas. Anything, my dear friends, anything that distracts you from that, throw it away, cast it aside. There's nothing else worth talking about. But I can be in Christ. I can be under that second covenant, that better covenant. Israel was a failure. By the way, we can take this one step back farther yet, can't we? Adam was a failure. Were you thinking of that tonight? Adam was a failure. Israel was a failure. I am a failure. Christ, a success. Come out of that prison, my friends. Come out of that prison of sin and guilt and take hold of the promised seed and all your sins will be forgiven. 
May God bring us to that manger. Let us pray. Lord, we acknowledge before you, we don't just acknowledge it, Lord, we own it this evening. We have to take our place with all the Israelites. We have to take our place with Adam and say, Lord, that first covenant, we can't stand before you on those terms. We have to take our place with Israel, Lord, in exile, thrown out of the promised land because we have not kept your commandments, we have not kept your covenant. And Lord, we confess this evening, we never will. Our hearts are too depraved and too wicked. We're sold out to sin. But how thankful we are, Lord, that on, especially in this season, Lord, it is revealed to us that in the manger was born one who never failed in one jot or tittle of the law. The one, Lord, who was tempted three times in the wilderness and never for a minute gave in to temptation. The one, Lord, whom you have said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Lord, what a wonder that you have opened up this new covenant whereby we can take refuge under the wings of our Savior, that he is now our representative, so that just as in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. All those who are in Christ shall be made alive by the power of your Spirit and have a good hope of entering into glory one day. Lord, I pray that you would open up these things for us and give us a fresh sense of the glory of the gospel. Lord, Moses took us by the hand tonight and he led us into prison. But we're thankful, Lord, that Moses, by the same law, leads us out of that prison and into the arms of the promised seed. Lord, will you remember us then in your mercy? Bless and keep us. Give us a good hour together also, Lord, with the young people tonight. We pray that we might rejoice in God our Savior. Lord, in his name we trust, and in his name we live, and in his name we hope to die. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal to number 293. Two hundred and ninety-three. We'll sing five, the five verses. In verse two, we sing, "O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height, in ancient times didst give the law, in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel." You understand those words now a little better, perhaps. Beautiful words, aren't they? We'll sing all five verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.